in writing, if you're going to try and publish, you have to look at like a lot of different magazines, right? If, you, if, you got, if you're writing short fiction, I would say the majority will say things like, these topics are not going to appear in our, our magazine. And one of the most common ones you'll see is violence against children. So when you're writing a story like this, you actually are closing yourself off to a lot of potential publication avenues. Now, I totally get why magazines do this. Everybody, uh, just wanted to give you a quick content warning for uh, discussions of violence against children and physical abuse that's going to be in this episode. So just be aware. Welcome, friends, to episode 235 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we discuss Joe Hill's 2004 short story and Scott Derrickson's 2022 film of the same name, The Black Phone. All right, hold on a second, James. I think I'm getting a call. I'm hearing a ringing somewhere. Do you hear that? <laughs> yeah. My cell phone seems to be breathing or something. <laughs> it's breathing, yeah. That was creepy. But it was creepy. <laughs> I like that that was a detail from the story that made it into the movie. Uh, we're getting ahead of ourselves. So we are talking about Joe Hill and Scott Derrickson this week, um, which should be a lot of fun. You know, these are these are both pretty big names, I think, in our, in our respective industries. Um, Joe Hill, we're going to mention a few times, uh, is, is the son of Stephen King. Uh, we'll try and keep it to a minimum, but it is, I think, pertinent for his, to understanding his career and, you know, where he, where his, where he sits in the industry and, and how people think of him. Um, you know, it, it, we read the short story. Oh, I, I read the short story before I saw the movie. Did you do the same or did you do it the other way around? I did it the time? other way, actually. You did? Okay. So that's actually kind of interesting. Maybe we can we could talk about the different uh, way that affects us because the short story is very similar to the movie, but the movie is a much more expanded, right? I mean, the short story is only 30 pages, pretty short. It's like 7,000 words. And the movie obviously adds a lot to that. But it kind of follows a similar route and, and it does sort of spoil the movie, uh, the ending of the movie, because it's very similar. Um, so you, you saw the movie without having read it. So maybe you were a little more surprised by what was going on. Whereas I kind of ex like knew a lot of it was going to play out a certain way. We're going to focus, I think first on the short story, just cause that's what we typically do. It's really interesting to see Stephen King's son lean into an area that very much is inspired and, and like is, would fit alongside a, a Stephen King's work because I feel like typically artists like to have their own like sort of feel like they need to get out of that shadow and maybe i don't know joe hill's history so maybe he started and maybe he didn't start with horror and he and he found his way into it but i liked it a lot and i, I think there are like the sort of fingerprints of stephen king on it not necessarily i think as any other horror author would have the fingerprints of stephen king i don't think that it's clear from his writing that that's his father or anything like that but yeah a lot of fun to read this story and be thinking about that interesting because it is kind of serial killer kidnapping story with elements of pretty massive supernatural elements 
Well, I think there's some ambiguity there, uh, especially in the short story. I I think uh, a lot of the supernatural elements are played up a little more in the film. It's not quite as ambiguous. Um, In the short story, you could read it almost as as like a metaphor or uh, something that the kid is hallucinating. There's no like firm evidence to con- to to go against that other than the fact that the grabber uh is also hearing the phone at one point but i mean that's about it um but it, i agree this this feels of a kind with content wise what stephen king might might write but the writing is different enough to where i could tell this is not a stephen king story like it is distinct um fr- from him um so that was that was cool to see. Uh, this story in particular came out very early in his career. Uh, it first published in 2004, later released in 2007 collection, or 2006, I think, short story collection, um, 20th Century Ghosts. And uh, I could tell that this is like a fairly early career writer in, in some ways. Um, it's kind of hard to describe exactly why, other than it's just there's a quality to the prose that feels less polished to me than than uh you typically expect from later career writers um but i noticed there was a quality to the characterization and the content and the ideas that is ultimately more important i think than anything else um it's something i'm starting to discern <laughs> and, and and learn and and um I don't know. That's just an opinion of mine, I guess. But it's something I'm starting to observe in the industry is that prose can go a long way. And if it's really, really good and really, really tight and and, and really sings in some sort of poetry, that can, that can go a long way. But having a great concept and a great idea that you execute with well-drawn characters will get you, I think, further. Um, you can have fairly pedestrian prose. I'm not saying Joe Hill does, but um, I, I I think you can have that and still find success if you're nailing the other stuff. So all that is to say that um, I I haven't read a lot of Joe Hill. Um, I actually, I mean, I'm aware of him, but I haven't read any of his novels or anything like that. I'd be curious to revisit him with some of his later work to to be able to compare and contrast because, yeah, like I said, this is a pretty early on story for him. He had his first pro publication in 1997, I saw. So this was seven or eight years later. Um, but before he had publicly, officially announced that he was uh, Stephen King's son, which uh, that is an interesting part of his history, which we'll talk about. I'm not going to do a summary for the short story because it's pretty similar, as we've already said, to the movie. Um, so we'll do a summary for the movie. Um, but I'll just uh, do like a couple sentences in a minute here when we get to the actual story. But It's crazy to think that Stephen King may be your proofreader, sort of, you know? As yeah. If it... I'm curious to know if he did. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I'd be that'd be something I'd want to ask Joe Hill. I don't know if he'd, if he'd like publicly talk about that or not, but when he was younger and he was writing, was he showing it to his dad? Was his dad giving him notes? Um, or was his dad too busy, <laughs> you know, being Stephen King to, to, to do that? I don't know, man. If it was me, I would really want to push back against being Stephen King's son and want to really be my own artist. And I think most artists do want that. Um, and it's, it's wild to me to think that you do have that resource available in the way that he could be. In, he almost could be a continuation of Stephen King in, in a sense, like a more 
modern look at some of King's elements, like the things that make King, like, again, that sort of idea of sparse supernatural stuff with like grounded trauma and things like that. That's a very Stephen King sort of premise. And and to see, you know, his son continuing in that same vein is, you know, I I think at least notable, at least like something that we have to talk about. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's similar to if your, if your uh, father was, you know, like the lead singer of the Rolling Stones or something. <laughs> uh, was that Mick Jagger? <laughs> no, that's, yeah. is it Mick Jagger? Yeah. Okay. Um, and then you like had a rock band, right? Like you would, you would be compared, right? You know, if you went and did something completely different and you weren't a musician, then it might be like more of a footnote. But if you're doing the same kind of thing, like everyone's always going to talk about it. So, uh, you know, whether or not he likes that, that's, that is the reality. <laughs> Um, okay, so his his life that, you know, from what I'm able to find, that does include some interesting bits. So Joseph Hillstrom King was born in 1972. He is better known by the pen name Joe Hill. He is an American writer born to authors Tabitha King and Stephen King. He was born and grew up in Bangor, Maine. His younger brother, Owen King, is also a writer, and he has an older sister, Naomi King. Uh, at age nine, he appeared in the 1982 film Creep Show, directed by George A. Romero, which co-starred and was written by his father. So if we, have, if we ever watch that, we'll see a nine-year-old Joe Hill apparently in there. This is such weird connections. I was just reading about George A. Romero. So Tom Savini is sort of a, a like a horror legend, prosthetics yeah. and, and um, costuming, and then he got into directing and he worked with George A. Romero a lot and worked on Creepshow. So like interest, he, he created the mask for this film. So that's our connection all the way through, yeah. all the way through from Creepshow with Tom Savini into Scott Derrickson's version for through Joe Hill and then into Stephen King. Yeah, it's almost like all these people know each other. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So he chose to use an abbreviated form of his middle name for his professional surname, aka pen name, uh, in 1997 when he sold his first pro uh, sale. Uh, out of a desire to succeed based solely on his own merits rather than that as the son of one of the world's best-selling and most recognized living novelists. He would, he would go on to first publicly confirm his identity in 2007, the year his first novel was released, after an article in the previous year's Variety reported his identity. So he had to, like, confirm it. But he, he waited about a year, but there was this article out there, and I'm sure he was getting asked, is it true, is it true, is it true? And he finally confirmed it. Um, now... This is this is not something I, I this is maybe apocryphal, but this is a story I've heard a few times at different cons, and it seems to be kind of legendary among literary agents um, because I've heard multiple literary agents talk about this. Um, Joe Hill signed with his literary agent and went through the entire process of querying, submitting, and getting his novel sold without revealing to his literary agent that he was the son of Stephen King. So when his literary agent found out, um, he found out because of this article and he had to like call him and get it confirmed. And <laughs> this is just something that literary agents talk about all the time <laughs> in like incredulity because it's like we're doing everything we can to sell your book. And if you are, you know, the, the son of one of the most popular living authors, please tell me that so that I can, you know, get you as much money as possible. Like. You can see how from an agent's point of view, this is very important information, but you can also see from Joe Hill's point of view that he didn't want to share that. Um, but they they laugh about it because 
you know, that's the kind of thing where they, you know, at a, at a, at a conference or something you're talking and it's like, yeah, make sure you share any important information you might have that might help sell your book as in, you know, and then they give this, this yeah. story. <laughs> it was obviously super deliberate though. Like he was like, I'm doing it on my own the first time. At of least. course. So, yeah. He definitely chose to yeah. do it. But from the agent's point of view, they weren't happy about it. <laughs> tough job. Yeah. Tough job. They're like, come on, you tell me that and make my job easy. <laughs> Hopefully things came back around and you know, if he stayed with that literary agent, they're probably, you know, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if he's changed agents or not. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure that agent's doing all right. I hope. <laughs> um, so he's, his first book uh, was a limited edition collection uh, called 20th Century Ghosts uh, that came out in 2005 that f- showcases 14 of his short stories and won the Bram Stoker Award for Best Fiction Collection, together with the British Fantasy Award for Best Collection and Best Short Story for Best New Horror. His first novel, Heart Shaped Box, was published in 2007, so that was the one we were talking about, and reached number eight on the New York Times bestseller list. Hill is the writer of the comic book series Lock and Key, whose first issue was released in 2008 and sold out of its initial publication run in one day. A collection of the series in limited form from Subterranean Press sold out within 24 hours of being announced. Just as a comic fan, I've heard amazing things about Lock and Key, and I know it's it's been adapted as a Netflix show now, but I just remember for years hearing how good Lock and Key was. Yeah. It, as a comic. Yeah, it's interesting because that, that came out in 2008. So the cat was out of the bag at that point of his identity. So I could see, like, as soon as people know, yeah. you're wondering how much is that driving interest. In Hill's defense, if it, if the writing wasn't good, I don't think the connection to Stephen King alone would be enough to maintain a career. It might it might create an initial surge of interest, but that will that will wane if people if the common knowledge is like, eh, it's not very good. Like people will stop reading him. So he, his continued success, you know, give him credit. That, that's definitely based off the quality of the writing. Hill's second novel, Horns, was published in 2010. A film based on the novel was released in 2014, starring Daniel Radcliffe. Nosferatu, his third novel, was published in April of 2013. The novel peaked at number five on the New York Times bestseller list. His fourth novel, The Fireman, was released in 2016. It entered the New York Times bestseller list at number one, making it his highest-ranked novel. In 2018, a collection of four short novellas was released titled Strange Weather. Now, this reminded me a little bit of... We've we've looked at a couple different collections like this from Stephen King. Uh, there was Four Past Midnight that contained uh, The Secret Window uh, novella that we talked about on um, Why the Book Wins podcast. And there was another, what was the name of the collection that had the body in it? Yeah, I think it was Different Seasons. That's right. So diff- Different Seasons, uh, Four Past Midnight. Th- this is something that we've seen King do. I think he has another one too, where he's, he's like combining different novellas into one volume. This may be something that other authors do, but I, I wasn't aware of it until we saw King do it. So I'm wondering if this is something that, he sort of took from his father, you know what I mean? Like, oh, hey, this is something I could do with with these collections of novellas. Um, it's kind of a cool idea, and and you package it together and sell it as basically a novel. Um, you know, it definitely seems some success, at least with Stephen King doing it. I mean, it's nice because you got variety there, right? Like, if somebody's like, oh, I don't like this one, I'll go to the next one. It's in between that and like a collection of short stories because collections of short stories, unfortunately, typically don't sell super well. Um, Unless the author is, you know, mega famous, but even then, it tends to sell significantly less than a novel would by that same author. Um, 
And I, I do think there's a little bit of like, I don't know, I, I'm curious from your perspective, like, wh- why do you think that might be the case? Like, why would a collection of short stories not tend to sell as well as a novel? I'm not sure. I, I think uh, we've seen with this, especially like modern viewers and readers, I really like to get attached to a character and stay around. That's why TV is so massive. And I think that like the short, I, I really like just a finite film where you get an experience and you leave and there's they're, they're leave you wanting more. So that's something that I like about short stories a lot is I get that same kind of feeling. But I think it's it's less approachable for an audience some of the time, especially I would say like the general audience when they're like they're like putting time into getting invested in these characters and then it ends. I think that can be tough for people. So yeah. that that would be my guess. There is something about that like familiarity and getting to to live with something for a while. I think I mean I think you're right. I I haven't heard it really broken down in a way that feels super satisfying to me, but I do think there's something there, right? Like that longevity, that that um familiarity that it, that can that can build up the longer you read something. That's why people like really long series, right? Like they feel like they they really know these characters, um, and and short fiction, yeah, it just doesn't do that. It, it's it's a little snapshot, and it's but, but what's also funny is like in our society, think about like TikTok and like there's so many other forms of entertainment that are so small, and so I always look at short stories and go like, why not short stories? Like why aren't they more popular? This is a big this is a big discussion and, and we're not gonna solve it here, but like if this is a thing people talk about all the time because like short fiction in uh in, in genre and in literature, there's a certain prestige around it. They can get nominated for awards and it can get you on the map within certain circles. But when you're talking about like reaching broad audiences, short stories typically are not going to do that. It's very unusual, like this one, The Black Phone, to, to have it be adapted into a major film to where a lot of people are going to all of a sudden become aware of it. But I would still bet you that not a ton of people are running out to read the short story, whereas if this was adapted from a novel by Joe Hill, I guarantee that novel would get a lot of sales. Um, now, I'm not saying that, that like his collection's not going to get some sales from this movie. I'm sure it will, but... I think by comparison, it, it's probably like if you look at like how many copies of Horns sold after that movie came out, it's probably quite a bit more. That I don't I don't have hard data in front of me, but that's my suspicion just from what I've seen in the industry. Yeah, I'm sure. I, I don't really know, you know, I, and I do worry that like the younger generations aren't reading as much, and I think we're reading less and less. So maybe that has something to do with as Like, do you think short fiction did better in past? I mean, it did do better way back we're talking like yeah. 70s and before 60s 50s you know authors like Kurt Vonnegut and Ray Bradbury were able to like create their careers on the strength of their short fiction and they made they made good money writing short fiction mm-hmm. and you just can't do that anymore um but it has been the case for a while and it ebbs and flows like I'm not an expert and I know that there there, there goes different it goes through different phases. Um, there's, there's, this is a big topic, but there's like, there's like audio uh, podcasts that that do short fiction that have found different levels of success. You look at um, different podcasts like the No Sleep podcast, or um, there's, there's all these collections uh, or, or ongoing podcasts. All the, all the Escape Artist podcasts, like we were talking about with Rachel uh, K. Jones last week, she's on all of those. Mm-hmm. Um, those are, are pretty popular. Um, but you know, it's all, it's all relative. Like, what are you comparing the popularity to? So, um, and the other thing with short fiction is there's an expectation that it's free. Um, most people do not want to pay to read short fiction. 
you know, and, and that's an interesting problem within the the genre because it's really difficult to, you know, have a profitable business if you're giving away the content for free. So this this is again. I'm out of my depth a little bit here because I'm not a publisher of short fiction, but um, I've gone to many cons and heard publishers of short fiction talk about this stuff. Anyway, let's move on. <laughs> there's there's a lot. There's so many different little side roads we could go down talking about this stuff. Um, that's just the first of probably several. So in 2017, Shudder announced that their upcoming series reboot of Creepshow would contain an adaptation of Hill's short story by the Silver Waters of Lake Champlain. Um, which I just I included that note because I thought it was pretty cool that at nine he was in this mo- you know this creep show that his father co-wrote and then now they're bringing it back in 2017 and his short story is being adapted for the show like that's a cool that has to be a cool uh, full circle moment for him for sure also probably part of the reason why it happened a little bit maybe you know I, I, again it's I think yeah, like you I said mean, that's the, the question, strength right? of the strength of his 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 writing has continued his success, but it has also been helped along right. by the fact that he was you know involved in all this horror stuff and learned from a young age. I like to think he's like Stephen King's protege, though you know, rather yeah. than him like sort of getting him all of his success. I don't know, you know, and that's the thing. Like we don't know what kind of like involvement King actually has. Maybe he's right. maybe he's very like you're on your own, kid. Like I I could see it both ways. I don't know. Yeah, um, I would love to hear uh, King like sort of speak critically or, or not even like saying the critical things, but, you know, analyze his son's work. And, oh, yeah. In, in that way. I'm sure he never does. <laughs> because no, yeah, sure yeah, yeah. I did hear him say, uh, this is jumping way ahead, but for the film, I heard him say that is like um, stand by me in hell or something like that. <laughs> you know, I could see that a little bit. That's funny. Um, gosh, the connections to all the things we've covered. Um, anyway, um, so, yes, and then in 2022, uh, The Black Phone by Scott Derrickson was released, which is an adaptation of Hill's short story of the same name. And I think we're all caught up now on on Hill's um, history as a writer. Um, so the story itself, let's talk about it. 13-year-old Finney is kidnapped by a man called The Grabber. He is trapped in a basement room, and the boy's only hope may lie in a mysterious, disconnected black phone hanging on the basement wall. The phone rings at night with the whispers of the kidnapper's previous victims. All right, this is it's almost just like a little teaser for the short story. We'll get into more of the summary. Um, but yeah, what, what, what were your observations reading this story? Similar to how... Um, have you seen Prisoners? Danny yeah, Lillian's yeah, film? love that movie. Yeah. So the, it, this kind of felt like prisoners blended with a Stephen King sort of s- supernatural element yeah. that's going to be like doled out over well, time. Well, the, the supernatural element is the, first off the phone, but then there's also a mention maybe of the sister having a premonition, yeah. shine kind of thing. Which yeah, very shining esque, uh, like a tel- like a telepathy, but it's not confirmed, right? No, no. In the story, it's a lot more ambiguous. Yeah, in the movie, I think that they make it pretty clear sure. that there is something else there. Um, yeah, overall, I thought that it was, it's it's interesting to say fun, but I thought it was a fun story in, in ways because he's introducing this sort of almost supernatural villain where we're getting that sort of John Wayne Gacy serial killer sort of thing going on. Absolutely. And it's all wrapped in like the trauma, I think as well. You can tell that this grabber talks a lot about his, like when he was a kid and things that he remembers, things like that. So, yeah, he doesn't talk a lot about it, but there's a few there's mention mentions of it, of it that are, I think, very notable. Yeah. 
so I think there's definitely that commentary of like that the what makes a, a killer, what makes these villains the way that they are. We've talked about legacies of violence, right, uh, being passed along from parents to child as a theme in King's work, and it is interesting to see a very similar thematic element here. Um, and yeah, I, I totally agree that this killer to me is 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 evoking John Wayne Gacy and also a bit of Ted Bundy. Um, not in look. Look is a lot more Gacy. Um, and also there's a mention of him being a, like working as a clown. So I think very directly. Um, but then Ted Bundy's um, and he's not the only one who did this, but his uh, tactic for kidnapping people. He would like act injured and things. He would have crutches and ask for help. Moving something or putting something in his car. Um, a lot of that. A lot of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, which is other killers have done. But I think. Ted Bundy is maybe perhaps the most famous for it. Um, we saw it later talked about in like Silence of the Lambs. We saw, uh, you know, it being evoked again um, where where authors have looked at that. And I think this is absolutely what Hill was doing. He was looking at these very famous true crime stories and using them to build this um, this villain. So this this story did feel really familiar to me because of that, but I had to put it in the context of when he wrote it yeah. because I think this like true crime boom that's happened in the last like five, ten years, there always was sort of, it just wasn't quite as popular, I think. Well, I th- honestly, hey, we're on a podcast. Um, I think podcasting has has transformed true crime a little bit because it's such a massive genre within podcasting. Um, yeah. and, and a lot of that came about in like what the 2010, like 2010 and beyond. Um, so before that, when he was writing this, it was a little, probably a little more niche, but it has always been there. As you said, like true crime has always been a fascination for a lot of people. It's just, I think as the accessibility of the information, um, you don't have to go to a, go to a bookstore and buy a book about John Wayne Gacy. Uh, all you got to do is like click on an episode of a, of a podcast and listen to it and you can dip in and dip out. And it's just very e- the Internet in general has made it easy. Right. And that interconnectedness with the hive mind and trying to find killers. Oh, and yeah. Like that. I think people, like solving. people really get invested in that. Yeah. Solving. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah, I, I think that's all very deliberate. Um, and I think it works. Like we talked about this with The Outsider, how I thought that would we, we thought that was a novel where where King was evoking uh, true crime. Um, and that definitely feels like the case here. We get the detail about the black balloons, which makes it into the into the film. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's mostly cool stuff. Uh, one thing I will say, um, if I was going to be a little critical, is that I've heard time and again people talk about Stephen King has a really bad habit of of um, fat shaming and uh, making obese characters either villainous or um, really self like self-loathing like really hate their bodies in this story the the killer whose name is al um is described multiple times as being just like disgustingly obese and that felt like a very stephen king detail to me where like maybe joe hill sort of internalized that from reading his father's work without maybe analyzing why that was happening um, so it was a little unfortunate for me in this in, to see it repeated here. Um, it's not to say, you know, I'm not trying to say you can never have a villainous, uh, you know, fat person, but um, there can be an equation 
with obesity and and uh, moral fiber being lacking. And I felt like that was a little bit going on here as we repeatedly were describing the way he uh, he looked and then would would follow it up with something he was doing that was evil. And just to jump ahead a little bit to the film, I, I like the update, right? Yeah. Like, it, ra- like it's about using a mask. There's something about like being ashamed of like who you are under the mask sort of vibe that's going on in the film and like revealing parts of yourself that I think yeah. like is more effective than what. Like, that was really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there is mention of uh, his his sister, Susanna, who has these like occult <laughs> beliefs and she like plays with tarot cards and she has visions sometimes and he imagines his sister like dr- on her bike looking for him. And mm-hmm. um, what a cool sequence too! like I love the way that it like flowed right into that. He was sort of imagining it. And then I kind of as the reader was going along and, and was pulled into it as if we were in her her point of view at that. And point. he's held for multiple days without food in this basement. And he starts to have these visions tied to the phone and he starts to hear the phone. He starts. But like, it's not just that, like he falls off the bed at one point and he falls three stories and so yeah, there's like weird yeah. stuff that starts happening where you start thinking like maybe he's just hallucinating all of this. And that's why I think the story is a lot more ambiguous about about whether or not this is really happening. Like the He's also still fucked up from like wasp spray in his face and yeah, eyes. Whatever and that, yeah, whatever like, that yeah, wasp poison yeah. or whatever it was. Yeah. They they played that up a lot more in the in the story, I think, than the movie. Like in the movie he's able to see pretty quickly. Um, yes. but in the story he's like blinded, I think, for like days or like very little vision for a while. Um yeah. Now, in the story, my understanding of it was it was all about this one kid, Bruce, who he had 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 this interaction with on the uh, baseball, uh, playing baseball. And they're both pitchers, but like the other kid was like slightly better than him. They they had this like brief overlap and connection. And a lot of that made it into the film, which I was happy to see. Uh, but we don't get a lot of the other victims here and the interaction is fairly brief. And then um, there is the description of the phone being filled with sand. And then uh, the brother, there is a brother who discovers what's going on in the basement, gets hit with a hatchet, I think in the story. And then, um, and then he hits, he hits Al and beats Al with this phone and then says, you know, it's for you. Uh, as it's ringing, um, and and that's the end of the story. Unclear whether or not the ringing is actually happening or something that is being hallucinated. Um, well, and I like that ambiguity in my stories too. Like that that adds that nice little element to where we get to debate it if we want to. You know, it's which I you know it's kind of a fruitless effort because it's to each their own. But I I do think it's nice to have that in within the story because it does allow us to say like. Was it? Was it not? What was going on in this kid's head? Getting getting into the mind and the POV of this character. Yeah. So uh, by the end, you know, I I felt like this was a pretty good story. I enjoyed reading it. It's um, I like the evo- evoking true crime is is interesting to me. It's something that I also listen to some true crime podcasts and know about. Um, it had moments that were really interesting. I, I like sort of the the surrealist descriptions, almost dreamlike quality of some of the hallucinations. Um, but the ideas were there and the char- characterization were there and it was cool. It was a good story, but I also felt like 
I don't know why this one was the one that was adapted. And, and that's something that like trying to figure that out can be maddening for authors because you will read so many stories that feel more cinematic. Yeah. Or just deserving of adaptation. Um, and, and whatever reason, this one connected with a Scott Derrickson um, and he chose to adapt this one. Um, and that's often the case. Uh, we, there's a, there's a myth out there that, writing and Hollywood and all of this stuff is somehow a meritocracy. And it's really not. Um, so much of it is just luck and the right person reading the thing, right thing at the right time. It probably didn't hurt that Joe Hill was the son of Stephen King. That may have led into Scott Derrickson wanting to read his collection. I don't know. I have some good info on that. Yeah. I'll, I, I got some. Yeah. So do we, do you want to wrap up here with the, the short story? Final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think I think I'm good on the short story. Let's talk about the movie. We'll we'll continue to do some comparisons because I think uh, the short story is interesting by comparison to what happens in in the movie, especially because we've already established that it's very, very, for the most part, other than the padding that they had to do in order to build out the story, uh, very faithful. Yeah, very faithful. Uh, Al, the villain, is pretty different. They they changed him to a magician instead of this like clown character. Um, and I did, mm-hmm. that was one of the few things I did read was Derrickson talking about that. Um, Hill and Derrickson had a conversation about, about it being a clown. And I think Hill was like, we can't, we can't do a clown. Cause it was right around the time that the, it had come out in theaters and they're like, we got to change, <laughs> we got to change this. And apparently it was Hill's idea to change it to a ma- magician, um, which evokes some of that same weird magic childhood connection creepiness that you get from the clown but isn't so directly if it had been a clown it would have been a little too close i think for comfort (laughs) for people (laughs) there's so much being done here with like almost stephen king references that it's like it's it's there like it might as well have been a clown it was basically pennywise mixed with like i don't know some other stephen king character although this guy is very he's not supernatural this is this is a human with human uh foibles and 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 mental illness going into this having seen like a trailer i did kind of think that as we went on we would learn that like he had been captured or something or he was supernatural i thought there may have been that building up but once the movie started i kind of readjusted that expectation yeah. it's a little more grounded than that even though there is that supernatural element for sure and that's what uh, let's let's get general thoughts out what, what did you think about the film overall i liked it i appreciated the unflinching look at childhood trauma and um the real dangers that can exist um with violence against children um and so so this is a topic i wanted to bring up and i guess i'm kind of getting into it now in writing if you're going to try and publish you have to look at like a lot of different magazines right if you, if you got, if you're writing short fiction i would say the majority will say things like these topics are not going to appear in our our magazine. And one of the most common ones you'll see is violence against children. So when you're writing a story like this, you actually are closing yourself off to a lot of potential publication avenues. Now, I totally get why magazines do this. Um, there's, I think it's a multi, you know, multi-faceted reason, but... Um, for one, they want to be able to say to their readers, uh, you're not going to encounter this in our in our magazine. So if that's something you don't want to read, you're it's okay. You can read our magazine. It won't be in there. Mm-hmm. One. Two, 
they have to read slush, which slush is the term for um, all of the all of the submissions they get from anybody on the internet, anybody in the world at this point, right? Um, so the quality of this writing varies dramatically, um, and and if you allow certain material, then you're going to get a lot of that material, and you don't want to submit your volunteer readers to having to read graphic, often poorly executed, sometimes thinly veiled fantasies. Like, there's weird shit you will encounter as a reader that you're like, we can't do this. So you tend to see it almost become more of a thing that, like, you have to earn. Like, you have to earn the trust and confidence of a publication or of a reader to pull off something like this. Um, so I do think there's a place for it in fiction. I'm not, I'm not like, completely against it, but I also totally get why some authors will say, I'll never write a story like that. Um, because there can be a, a perception that you are... Um, traumatizing the viewer or traumatizing the reader. And, um, and because of that potential thing that can happen, some authors would rather just not write about it. Um, as sort of like an ethics, uh, decision. And yeah, I just wanted to ask you about it. Is there, do you, do you feel like there's a similar things going on in movies right now? Um, because I was a little bit surprised by how heavily we were leaning into, uh, yeah, this this guy is kidnapping and murdering children. Now, interestingly, the sexual violence stuff is hinted at, but not, like, explicitly said. But I think the implication is that it is happening. Yeah, it's better left that way. It's creepier. It's more ambiguous. You don't know for sure that it's going to happen, but it, it could happen. Yeah, well, because, like, it seems that, I mean, like, what's the motive here? And And the likelihood is it's sexually based, right? And that tends to be the case for these killers. You can tell that he's getting some sort of gratification yeah. from the stuff he's doing as well. Um, yeah, so a lot of stuff to react to with that. Do I think the same thing is happening in film? I think that you've seen children in, in danger in film maybe a little more. Well, it's not necessarily like children are in danger, but it's like right. showing actual violence against children. Like there's this particular scene in this movie um, yeah. with the father right. whipping basically his daughter that that was shocking to me. Yeah. So to jump ahead and to like get into sort of why Derrickson took this this job and why he wanted to tell the story and a lot of things that why maybe that scene was so graphic. Derrickson, this is some somewhat in some ways, he says that for the 400 blows was it was a big inspiration on him for this film. And what the 400 blows is it's Truffaut's film that's semi-autobiographical. And that's sort of the case here as well, which I didn't know about Derrickson, but he's come out and said a lot, as much. Derrickson said, quote, I grew up in a violent household in a violent neighborhood. When I was eight years old, a friend of mine who lived nearby knocked on my door and told me that his mother had just been murdered. There was also a lot of domestic violence in my home and in the homes of the children I grew up with. It was a scary, violent place to grow up in, and I tried to bring the reality of that to the film. And um, he goes on to say other things such as most of the children in the film, including the ghosts whom Finn's, Finney speaks to on the phone, were based on children I grew up with, he says, adding that he spent several years in therapy in order to process his painful childhood memories. So this idea of 
you know, I think we've heard King sort of perspective on this stuff as well. Like we've seen some of that in his writing. And I, I, you know, I think you would know better than me. I think he's, he has said a few times that like he has imbued some of those experiences into his writing. For sure. Yeah. I mean, there is a, there is a therapeutic element, I think, to authors putting it in there. I think there's a, some writers, I think, feel a obligation or a responsibility uh, and they take it upon themselves to put their experiences into fiction and to realize that. And I think uh, so, uh, a lot of people who like horror like that they feel less alone in that their childhood maybe was horrific in some way. And when they see that represented in a book, they can have a connection and they can say, yeah, this is what life can be like. And, and, it, can be, and it can be cathartic. And you can often see much like this story, a character overcome this challenge and come out the other side stronger. Um, And while I think that can sometimes be a bit of a slippery concept, the idea that like trauma can make us stronger, um, it can also be aspirational. And the sense of it being aspirational, I like it. Um, and I do think that that is present in the story. I read, did read that that's one thing that Scott Derrickson said he connected with the story was that he liked that it felt like a triumphant moment for Finney. And uh, he said it felt cathartic. And that was something he wanted to put into his movie. That That's part of what Derrickson's motivation into the story was. I think he connected with it. I did. Uh, he said that he picked up the collection in a bookshop and read through all of the black phone like right there in the bookshop wow. and realized right away that it could be adapted and would be adapted it could be adapted well you know the idea of this trauma being put on screen too i think there's something about how unspoken it was for such a long time like you think of the yeah. 70s and and before like how you know child abuse and domestic violence was sort of this unspoken thing and i think that bringing it to the light putting it out there for people to see i think if it even slightly helps someone realize like maybe I shouldn't hit my kids or, you know, maybe this is not seen as a good thing to do that can that can, you know, start a good trend. And that that's sort of another angle that I think I would take in, in terms of like putting something like that into my my stories. Well, not just, I think, unspoken, but commonly just done like right like um, yeah. and still done today. You know, there are still people, you know, there's still a contingent of people who believe in corporal punishment for their children. And whether that looks anything like it does in this movie here, you know, it varies. But um, I think the inclusion of the father um, using his belt to beat his kid, um, I think that's a really important moment for understanding this movie. Um, And I didn't realize it at the time, but when I was reflecting on the film, I realized that our villain is, is sort of an embodiment and a manifestation of that kind of trauma, but taken to an extreme, which you often see in horror. Right. Um, But I think very telling that the, his whole little game he plays is about the kid being quote unquote naughty and he's up there, he's upstairs with the belt, very specifically, which is what we see the father use. Now, these details are not in the short story. So this is something that Derrickson and, uh, you know, screenwriters are bringing to it. Just to speak about the screenwriter, because you mentioned him, his name is uh, C. Robert Cargill. 
Uh, they Derrickson and he work alongside each other a lot. I think they work together on Sinister for sure. I believe the first Doctor Strange as well. Um, so you know, I, I think that's that's a good setup for our general thoughts. I would say that going in, I was expecting maybe a little more supernatural. I was expecting the film to be um, something that I'd never seen before because it was the first my first um, interaction with the project. And once I realized that we were getting a version of a story I'd seen before and kind of readjusted that, um, I appreciated it a lot more. And I think it was actually ex- When you say a version of a story you'd seen before, are you referring to the Stephen Kingness of it or? No, I was more the prisoners sort of like kid being abducted kind of thing. Although prisoners is more from the perspective of the father who's dealing with an abducted child, not from the perspective of the child. So, you know, maybe it's not fair to say that. And, but... and as much as I like, as much as I did like this movie, I, 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 think prisoners is is definitely the superior film um yeah. and part of it is the way that it breaks from convention and 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 sort of subverts the expect expectations of what you what you think you're going to see um in a movie like that um whereas this right. movie i agree it's it's a little more like over home plate like a little bit, yeah. yeah. But the the once having seen it, having reflected on it, having I I walked away enjoying yeah. it. I think that Agreed. some I'm a victim of a little bit of hype and a little bit of like I was seeing that it was it debuted at Fantastic Fest like almost a year ago, and I remember people just being like completely blown away and saying it's one of the best horror movies in in yeah. years. And I think that tends to be the case with some of these some of these like festivals. Yeah, I it, I'm starting to like a- after doing this enough with you and like. We hear yeah. all this like stuff that comes out of these festivals and it's like the people at these festivals, f- people fucking lose their minds. And then, yeah. yeah, whether or not it always bears out. Yeah, Not to say this movie wasn't good. It was good. It just, you know, is one of the best horror movies of the last decade. I don't know. Yeah. So horror fans love horror films, too. Like, and I find myself in that genre a lot. I, I think I consider myself a pretty big horror fan. Yeah. And the, you, you take the good with the bad. You take an average horror film and the hor- a horror fan feels like it's a lot better. And I am that person. I, I, I like an average. And I'm not even saying this is average. I would say this film's above yeah, I was gonna average. Say, I, I wouldn't call this an average. I think this is above that. Yeah. Yeah, this is above average for sure. I think the performances were great. I think the filmmaking was was expert. But uh, I think some of the story and some of it just goes back to the how closely they adapted a story that was written. So good on them for sort of sticking sticking to that in ways. There are things that I really like about this movie, and there's a few things that I think just my opinion on storytelling varies a little bit from what I saw, um, and and that is a very subjective point of view. One thing I did really like and appreciated about it is the idea that this is an anti-nostalgia film, um, that he wanted to, he, I think he even said, Derrickson, that he wanted to be this the, the anti-Amblin movie (laughs) i saw something where he was saying basically like a lot of people remember the 70s for the nostalgia of it the fun times the things that they did and he remembered like the manson murders and like things like that that like that's things from his childhood that stuck with him. well yeah 78 is when this movie set and that's right around the time that gacy and all these these uh killers were active and and, right and honestly when i think back about my childhood there's like some rose tinted glasses and stuff but i also remember things like 9-11 and these big disasters and like the columbia disaster and you know that kind of stuff does stand out to me a lot yeah absolutely um and and i think i think it's important i think both things can can be important in their own way right like it's two different sides of the same coin like it's important to remember that not everything is as we wish it were which a lot of our nostalgia is looking back at something and and kind of glorifying and saying i wish it was this way 
Um, and and this this movie doesn't do that. This movie's showing the other, the dark side of it, um, for the most part. I do think its ultimate message is a bit rosy. Yeah. So uh, I do want to talk about Derrickson a little bit. I love him as a filmmaker. I was so excited to see his film Sinister. So I, I don't. I, I think I've seen Doctor Strange, and that's it from him. I haven't seen Sinister. I haven't seen. Have you seen The Exorcism of Emily Rose? Oh, I did see that one. Yeah, okay. that's what put him on the map. That was his big breakout. I did like that movie. Yeah, and then he did The Day the Earth Stood Still with Keanu, the remake. Oh, okay. In 2008. I've seen. I did see that. Yeah, so eh, you've seen his that stuff. That was okay. But he was, you know, Emily Rose hit really hard. Dave there stood still not quite as much. Sinister, I felt like when I saw Sinister, I was like, oh, I want to see him do more horror. I want to see all, like tons of films that this guy makes because Sinister is one of my favorite horror films of the last like, you know. So would you say better than this movie to you? I would say so. That's probably a better Derrickson movie, in my opinion. He also did Deliver Us from Evil in 2014. And then, yeah, Doctor Strange in 2016. Really strong voice in horror. He teams up with... Jason Blum of Blumhouse a lot and he and and Cargill are like sort of writing writing partners and and I love the the stuff that they've created so anyway Scott Derrickson is an American filmmaker I named most of the films that he's directed right there and most of the notable ones the film Sinister that I mentioned it came out in 2012 it was a three million dollar film that ended up grossing much much more than that it was generally positive critically and then soon after that, he was sort of picked into uh, to do Doctor Strange, which you know how that can be like finding these directors who are like voices like Scott Derrickson, Taika Waititi, these people who are like up and coming. I feel like St- Doctor Strange is such a departure from everything you've just described to me. And, and I, I think part of that is just that there's like a machine of Marvel and these directors come in and they still have to like conform to sort of the house style of Marvel. Right. A little bit, but I, I i mean, definitely, no question. But I think that Derrickson was drawn to the project because he liked Doctor Strange a lot. And he was the one who really, intru- if you remember Doctor Strange, there's a lot of like psychedelic visuals sure. and stuff. And he started introducing that to Marvel, which I think was really cool. And he wanted to, I don't know if you knew this or not, but Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness that came out recently, he, you know, he's still listed as an executive producer because he was on to direct it, but they, he left due to creative differences. Yeah. And the creative differences were he wanted it to be way more fucking horror. And there was, if you saw, eventually Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness would go yeah. on to be directed by Sam Raimi, yeah. who's horror royalty as well. Yeah. And crazy to think, like, there are horror elements in that story. It did feel like that that the direction went more comedic, though. In the way that Marvel wants it to go Right. Sometimes. Went more Spider-Man for Raimi than, than it went. You know. It's interesting, too, because like that movie, I, I, this is totally tangential, but that movie is so weird in a way that I love because it's so unflinchingly comic booky and at the same time has those or horror elements. But I think the problem was that they just didn't blend it correctly to where it felt sort of all sa- of the same. It felt like the distinct things were like horror, comedy, and then also sort of like multiverse jumping weird shit. So I don't know. I liked it, uh, but... I think that Sam Raimi's great. I think Scott Derrickson's great. I like yeah. a lot of the Marvel movies. So they did uh, Scarlet Witch really dirty in that movie, though. I will say that to an extent, I would say. You know, I think I think that it was cool to see her get to be a villain. I do think that it was sort of a like a step in the wrong direction for her character, just in terms of like her growth over time. Didn't make as much sense, but it. Uh, that's a story for another time. We can do a whole <laughs> episode about Marvel stuff. Uh, so yeah, I talked about how he left the project and around that time he and Cargill were like, what should we do? Like, what have we been working on? And they started developing this way back before they even started Sinister. They started developing the black phone and they knew they wanted to work on it. 
Cargill promised to postpone the project until Derrickson, who had a commitment with Marvel Studios, became available to direct. In January of 2020, Derrickson came on board to helm the Black Phone soon after departing the Doctor Strange sequel due to creative differences. Filming took two months in Wilmington. The film premiered at Fantastic Fest in uh, September of 2021 and was released theatrically in June of 2022. Mason Thames, who plays Finney, uh, also talked about how because of COVID hitting right, you know, in 2020, he did his audition over Zoom and he said it was weird and he had like bad Wi-Fi and they were like <laughs> delayed, but still he got a call back and, and you know, the rest is history. It, but one of the biggest things about the actors coming on board was Ethan Hawke was really hesitant to play a villain because I, and I listened to a bunch of behind the scenes stuff before we got on to record. And it's really interesting. Ethan Hawke is quite an interesting figure to listen to speak. I love him as an actor. Yeah, I agree. He's great. He was talking about how he doesn't want, he never wanted to play villains. He felt that Nicholson was never viewed the same after The Shining. He felt that if you look like pre-Shining and post-Shining, people just didn't trust him as much because they he had that, he stuck in their brain as that villain. And I don't, I don't agree with that, but I think it's an interesting take for an actor to be sort of superstitious in that way and be like, if I play a villain, they'll see me as a villain forever and they won't trust my performances. And he would go on to say all of these things. Um, I think there's a kernel of truth for Jack Nicholson, but that doesn't mean it will be true for you. Right. Yeah. And I think he's realized that over time. He just was t- saying that's sort of how he used to do there, it. Because there are a lot. You could you could give a lot of other examples of actors who have played iconic villains and, and still have gone on to play iconic right. heroes, I guess. Especially when they're like transformative like this. Like Ethan Hawke like, is like unrecognizable. He's wearing a mask a lot of the time. And that's one of the other things is he was really excited to wear a mask and try to act through that and and what it was bringing and what it was giving. Because as we talked about, that mask changes throughout. Shout out Tom Savini on that. Like, it, it was awesome. I mean, Ethan Hawke is incredible in this movie. I think he's 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 a reason to see it. His performance here yeah. is really good. Um, perhaps the most standout. Although I will, uh, I agree that, that that both of our lead children are very good. And Mason, Dane's I was a little worried in the beginning. Did you have that feeling? Yeah. The first like ten minutes, I was like, oh, is this gonna? Is the acting gonna be genuine enough and believable yeah. enough? And the first little bit, the kids were all interacting a lot, and that can be risky. We've talked about it many times yeah. with ki- child actors. But I realized it was more not the leads. It was some of the like the other characters, secondary characters who. I still feel a little mixed about some of the performances. I feel bad calling them out because they are children who are acting and like who knows what they'll go on to become. Um, but yeah, I felt like it was overall a little uneven with a lot of the secondary kids. Um, but our our two leads, uh, the the, char- the actors who played Finney and Gwen, uh, his sister, I think were both really, really good. Yeah. Mason Thames played Finney yeah. and Ma- uh, Madeline McGraw played Madeline McGraw. Gwen. Okay. Yeah, I thought she was really good too. She was one that I was a little worried about early, but but actually, uh, the more the more I saw what they were doing with the character, the more I appreciated it. And then, um, you know, there's that that really harrowing scene. I thought she did an amazing job with. So, um, and that's a that's a tough thing to ask a kid to to portray. And I thought she did a really good job with it. Yeah, just uh, to go back to sorry, I should have mentioned this before, but to go back to Ethan Hawke, um, apparently. He offered Ethan the role. Ethan was hesitant. Then he sent him the script. And then he said less than 24 hours after that, he called me and left a message on my phone speaking in the creepy grabber voice. <laughs> he read one of the lines from the script before he told me that he would take the role. And then he, Derrickson goes on to say he brought a deep understanding of the character to the role. And his performance in the film is complex, frightening, moody, and unlike anything he's done before as an actor. And the voice is, I think, one of the, one of the best things he brings to this character because there is this... 
he does this like changing, like it, it shifts from like a, a, a like a higher, almost like lilting voice to this deep, almost demonic, but not in a comical way. Like that almost sounds silly, but he does it in like a way that feels almost natural, but indicative of some sort of psychosis. Um, and I find it really effective. And then, yeah, when you're when you're delivering it through this changing mask that looks different all the time. Um, and I, at first I thought he had multiple masks and then I realized that it was like the mask is like almost modular you could like exactly. swap out the mouth and you could swap out the, the headpiece. Like so cool. Like what a great idea. Um, Tom Savini designed mask, like so excellent and so scary. Oh, I did want to shout out, um, Jeremy Davies here. I think he had a very difficult role in, in the father. Um, but he's an actor that I do like. He's been in a lot of stuff I've seen. Um, and he lost. <laughs> and, uh, sure. Um, he's, he's unjustified. I think he plays a really interesting character there. And I've seen him in several other things. He's kind of a character actor a little bit. He For tends sure. to play this kind of like weird guy who, um, but that weird guy takes different forms in every movie he's in. And, and here is this sort of abusive father, um, pretty harrowing, it did, I I see the, it comes back around a little bit and has a little bit of resolution, but it, not enough for my liking. Like, I, I wanted something more with the father storyline. I don't know. I, I'm curious to you know if you, if you felt that way or not. Yeah, I mean, because it felt like it was like there was going to be some sort of reckoning, and, but it seems like more than anything, he's just, he's sorry. At the end of the movie, he's like, he's sorry. And I'm like, okay, that's kind of weak a little bit just in terms of what the, how, how fucked up what he did was. But I guess, you know, losing, almost losing your child will do make you feel like more compassion. We should probably get into summary now since we're like diving into plot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. All right. So in 1978, a serial child abductor named The Grabber prowls the streets of a Denver suburb. Siblings Finney and Gwen Blake live in the area with their abusive alcoholic father. At school, Finney is frequently bullied and harassed. He has a friendship with a classmate, Robin, who fends off the bullies. A boy from another school that Finney knew, Bruce, is abducted by the grabber. Gwen, who has psychic dreams, much like her late mother, dreams of Bruce's kidnapping and sees that he was taken by a man in a black van with black balloons. Detective Wright and Miller interview Gwen but struggle to believe her claims. The grabber abducts Robin as well as Finney days later. Finney awakens in a soundproof basement. On the wall is a disconnected black rotary phone that the grabber says does not work. Later, Finney hears the phone ring and answers it. Bruce's ghost, unable to remember his own name or who he was when he was alive, tells Finney about a floor tile he can remove to dig a tunnel to escape. The setup here is 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 pretty excellent. I, I did like the, the unflinching look at this era. Um, there's a sort of film grain that I noticed that was evoking that 70s um, vibe. Um, you know, it's good stuff, uh, interesting stuff. I, I the the there's this detail of this little rocket that he uses to slash the grabber, um, which is kind of something from the story, although they're not. It's not necessarily a, a, a rocket. I think he bites him in the story, but that injuring him was a thing. Um, you know, all creepy, and then seeing this uh this basement, it, like actually made into a set and and um. How frightening it is, um, how sparse, and the shadows of it, I think, are used to great effect as we start to see that evoked with the supernatural elements. Um, 
very cool. And then, yeah, we hear about this this tile that can be lifted up. And there's a couple different things he's able to discover in the space um, that he's able to use in different ways. Yeah, I like, and to jump to the end, I like that, like, all of these little things that he keeps learning, like, eventually are important to get out. Like, I thought it was a cool buildup for that. Um, you mentioned the shadows and in, in, in that way you mentioned lighting and I thought it was really good use of lighting like this sort of like light coming through this, these small windows light from like maybe a lamp or something like that. There was one time where he says like I you know if if you if there's somebody out there I'm going to scratch your face so that when they see you they know that like something happened they're going to ask about it and he's like what this face and he like sort of leans back and reveals the mask yeah. into like this pool of light. And I thought it was so it's such a cool shot. Yeah. Um, I think it probably made the trailer too, if I remember correctly. Oh, really? They did a good job of making the space feel sort of weirdly large and small at different yeah. times to kind of put you on your back foot, I think. Um, good use of space. I mean, a lot of the film, it's tough to be like, oh, we're going to we're gonna put you in a basement, a dreary, dark, shitty basement, and then film an entire movie down there. And but they did a good job of making the f- space feel believable and weird and yeah. I think in one of those initial calls he gets to, there's this moment where the bottle spins, uh, this glass bottle spins on the ground and then points up at the window, and it like it, I felt like that was done all done practically was my what what it seemed like to me. And it looked really cool. I don't know it, it, those little ways that he evoked the supernatural um, were pretty neat. And there, like there's. I would always worry that something like this could come off kind of hokey. Um, but I felt like he walked a really good line about making it come off that way. And then uh, there is a blending of the story being revealed through the phone and sort of the dreams that his sister's having uh, about the crimes. Um, and, and so there's a, there's like a connection that's formed there within the movie that, that works really well. Uh, visually, I also liked that that Derrickson loves like film stock. There's like a few moments where we're seeing flashbacks or we're seeing like different. I feel like even the dream was maybe not on film stock. Definitely the beginning. There's sort of a montage sequence at the beginning, but um, it's also evoking that time period. You know, like you know, uh, Super Eight sort of home video film like stock film being shot and you know wealthier families having stuff like that to film their home videos and that that way that it brings back the nostalgia in a way and it reflects it in the film I think is really cool. Gwen's powers, you know, we've talked about it a little bit. It's definitely got quite a bit of shine to it. And expanding this this stuff isn't easy. Like when you think about adapting a story that's sort of sparse in in comparison to a feature length film. Yeah. Trying to figure out what still is in the same vein as what was being told. I think that it was sort of within the story a little bit, but to, to flesh it out this far and then to say like the mother also had it was such a shine sort of thing. Inherited. Like, oh, yeah. Inherited kind of thing. Yeah. And, and although it, it kind of, it seems like it kind of drove her mad and she committed suicide over it. So yeah. And, and, and the father's worried about her suffering in the same way. A couple other like Stephen King sort of references in ways that I read online and sort of noticed on my own as well. Um, Gwen, when she's like riding on her bike th- with the rain and everything, is wearing like the yellow jacket. Oh, which, I, yeah, actually, I, yeah, I thought about that too. I was like, this is yeah, very, it looks very, very much it. like a Georgie from from uh, it, which makes you concerned for her in that same like film language sort yeah. of way. We're like, where have I seen this before? Wasn't that didn't that not end well? <laughs> yeah, I wish so. we had more scenes of the grabber, Ethan Hawke's character, mm. 
interacting with his brother. That was one thing that I wanted, even just one scene, because I don't think we ever see the two talk other than at the end of the movie when (laughs) he gets the axe. I would have liked to see that. What are their relationships like? Now, I understand that it's kind of mysterious by not showing it. Yeah, I think that's part of it. Man, I don't know. Like, I like Ethan Hawke so much in this role. I would love to see what that looks like when he's talking to his brother. I I heard Derrickson talk um, and he he basically said like some of his favorite villains in film, you know nothing about. And I think that's part of it is just keeping that mystery and keeping very unsettling. Why? Like, how is this guy not realized that there's something going on in this room? And, you know, yeah, pretty wild. All right. Moving on to the second part. The police search for Finney is unsuccessful. The grabber brings Finney food and leaves the door to the basement unlocked. Finney prepares to sneak out, but is stopped by another boy on the phone called Billy. He explained this is a game that the grabber plays, and he is waiting for upstairs to attack Finney with a belt if he leaves the basement. Billy instructs him to use a cord he found to get out via the basement window. While climbing, Finney breaks the bars on the window, preventing him from climbing back up. Gwen dreams of Billy being abducted and confides in her father about what is happening. Wright and Miller speak to an eccentric man called Max who is staying in the area with his brother. It is revealed Finney is being held in Max's basement, of which he is unaware, and the grabber is his brother. After an agitated exchange with the grabber where he tests Finney's honesty, he makes it seem as if he would let Finney go. Finney speaks to another one of the victims, Griffin, on the phone. Griffin shows Finney a combination to a lock and informs him that the grabber has fallen asleep upstairs. Finney sneaks upstairs and unlocks the door, but the grabber's dog alerts him to Finney's escape. Finney flees down the street, but is recaptured. Excellent sequence. I thought the building suspense and and him sleeping on the chair. It's very menacing. Um, you kind of knew like, oh, he's gonna get he's gonna get discovered. This is too early in the movie for him to get away. <laughs> um, right. But but you know, it was it was an exciting moment and uh, definitely frightening. To, you know, it's like it's like that thrill, right? Of like he knows the danger. Yeah. He's been warned of what's happening up there, and yet he has to face it. Um, so it's right. part of this growth, I think, that we see out of Finney as he's learning to um, be brave, right, and stand up for himself, yeah. which is kind of the the message that uh, that other character, I think, Robin, Robin, uh, yep, tells him. I, I find it cool that he like tries to use the rug to get out with the cord and everything as well. Yeah, and I like then, to like, see him the, the, the using his head, right, right, which is you know. I think there's another version of this where like the cop comes and saves the day and the kid's just been cowering the whole time. So it's fun to see the story playing out like that. He's like, saving himself, right. which I, I do like the idea of that, right? Like he's not a, um, he's not just a victim who needs to be rescued. He is uh, his own savior ultimately. Yeah. And you're right. That, that scene with the lock is so, there's so much tension there as he's like creeping yeah. by. Like when you're in a movie, it's like a very, specific kind of tension that you can yeah. build in that way and it, it definitely it definitely got the job done there there's a couple of really good jump scares in this movie too <laughs> um you know yeah. for for what for what they're worth you know like i have mixed feelings about jump scares but you know they could be fun every now and then especially if they're combined with something truly creepy and i felt like there was there's this one in particular that stands out to me that, that got me pretty good where he hears this dripping sound and he's like, what is the sound? He's like looking around the basement. I kept like thinking like, is is there like a drip? Is there dripping water somewhere? Is the faucet dripping? Um, and then he looks over in the corner and there's this 
this body of this kid who's he's like dangling with you know like in this really unnatural way and like his throat has been slit and is dripping blood on the ground and that's the dripping he's been hearing and it's something about the sound i think like gets loud when we see that image and it it definitely startled the shit out of me um but but a very cool visual a very scary one and then and then you know that's that's followed up with another moment later with this other kid who is himself kind of a bully but also a victim right obviously older kid it seems like um and there's a moment where he's like yelling at him and then he gets yanked and i think it's i think it's you know like a it seems like one of these moments that is in a lot of movies where they they put you on a harness and they literally pull you back like as fast as they can and you fly back and land on a on a pad usually but he takes that and then makes him through a manipulation with uh, computer graphics, I imagine, look like he gets pulled just like into the fucking darkness and off into ether, like the ether. Yeah. And that moment looks really cool. Like I was like, that's just a cool fucking sequence. I like a lot of what they did visually with the the, the people on the phone sort of appearing like you, the camera would sort of go around the subject. And then while he's on the phone, the person on the other end would like appear and then like sort of disappear on a, like based on when he was talking to them and stuff. And, I thought that a lot of it looked really cool in the way even like we'll get to that in a second. But the when Robin is like teaching him to fight, like they're both like very choreographed together. Like I found it to be kind of cool. I thought it was okay. I don't know. Robin in general, I felt like was one of the weaker parts of the movie. I felt like it was maybe a little too cute to have this like super badass kid who's taken him under his wing and is willing to teach him all the lessons and how to fight for himself and literally choreographing the fighting that he would then later use. I don't know. Is is, is there something wrong with me for like seeing this as almost a little corny? I don't think so. No, I mean, I, I get it. I took it to be like more genuine and I liked it because there's that there. I think like that's the point of the story is like learning to fight for himself. And this guy is kind of there to help him, but definitely like, it feels very like it's almost like a Disney moment or something. (laughs) Otherwise (laughs) yeah, it it felt almost out of place in this otherwise really dark movie to have this almost like cute moment. Anyway, um, let's, let's read the final bit here. So despondent over his failed escape attempt, Finney answers the phone to hear another victim, a punk called Vance, whom Finney was scared of. Vance informs Finney of a connecting storage room he can escape through if he breaks a hole in the wall and exits through the freezer to the other side of the wall. Finney creates a hole with a toilet tank cover and enters the back of the freezer only to discover that the freezer door is locked. The phone rings one more time with Robin at the end of the line. He comforts Finney and encourages him to finally stand up for himself. He instructs Finney to remove the phone receiver and pack it with the dirt he had dug out to use it as a weapon. Gwen dreams of Vance's abduction and discovers the property of the grabber. She finds the house and contacts Wright and Miller. Max realizes Finney is being held in the house and rushes to the basement to free him, but his brother kills him with an axe. The police rush to the house Gwen found but find it abandoned. In the basement, they find the buried bodies of the grabber's victims. The grabber attacks Finney with the axe, but Finney manages to trip the grabber with the cord, causing him to fall into the tunnel Finney dug where the grabber breaks and traps his ankle in the window bars placed at the bottom. The ghosts taunt the grabber over the phone before Finney breaks his neck with the phone cord, killing him. Finney distracts the guard dog with meat from the freezer and escapes the house using the combination he learned. Finney exits the house across the street from the gravesite where he reunites with Gwen and the police rush to the property. The siblings comfort each other as their father arrives and apologizes for his treatment. Back at school, a confident Finney sits next to his crush in class. I liked the detail 
that Hawk included of like when the mask gets knocked off, he sort of loses some of his power as he's sort yeah. of like being seen for the first time. And he like that, that, that I think is something that this character is afraid of. Um, Facing himself. Yeah. Or just being seen in general. Like he, he, he's keeping all of that secret and hidden. Um, he does, t- you know, he talks about his experience in this basement and with this phone. And I, I think you're right that there is some implication that maybe something happened to him down here. Well, he said it hasn't worked since he was a, a kid. kid. The phone yeah. I don't know. Like it, it, the history of violence kind of stuff, some implications of that, but you know, they don't explore it because I think he doesn't want us to empathize too much with the killer, which is probably a good decision. And yeah, uh, unfortunately, you know, often, you look at serial killers, they're not always, but there does tend to be um, childhood abuse that they suffered that then seems to have some effect on them as an as adults. Yeah, head trauma a lot too. Yeah, head trauma is pretty frequent. That's true. I also thought that it was really interesting that there was this like basement connection with this freezer. And I was so confused about like where and how this worked. Yeah. Um and I are the are the basements connected? Like where is this freezer? I couldn't figure are there two basements? Like I, I don't know. I'm I'm like I'm, there are definitely two basements, but are there two basements within the home the 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 home that he's being held in? I think so. I guess so. That seems pretty unusual yeah. to have like And then he would bury the bodies at the like the neighbor's house or whatever or the other house that they owned, I guess they Cuz I thought they connected somehow, but that I guess doesn't make sense cuz it would have to go like under the street. So that's not happening. Yeah, I don't think it's possible, yeah. Yeah. So I guess the I guess the freezer was just in like a separate basement within the same home. Of the same house, yeah. Strange. <laughs> so fast forwarding a little bit to the end here. Um the message of the movie is definitely one that like I like, right? Like you you can overcome your trauma, you can you can find a strength in it and you can best it yourself not needing to be rescued. Um his connection with his family over it, like it seems like the bond with his sister becomes very important. I like that. They share this this sort of abusive home. Um but again, the father comes and is sort of begging forgiveness of them at the end, um, and I guess that's the full circle moment for the for the father. But it it almost didn't feel like enough. But maybe maybe that's okay. It feels like what you do, like a desperate thing, and then he's, it, I kind of feel like he's fallen back into his ways in a few months to a year. Yeah, that's know? the thing. Like, is he never going to do it again, or, or is, are we getting this again? Because I feel like we're getting it again. I don't know that he's really lucky. And maybe that's maybe that's the sad side of it. Like maybe that was Derrickson's viewpoint on it is that you it's, kids can't escape it until they leave the home or something in some cases. So the other thing, I ultimately wanted this movie to end there. Um, the the scene that I was not as fan, much of a fan of was this final going to school moment. It feels a lot like every it's like that happy horror film of the two, early two thousands vibe, where they, like there needs to be some wrapping up, some some feeling good moment. Yeah. It's a step too far, and I get I get that that's really driving the message home that he wants to drive home of like being empowered and and the cathartic experience. But unfortunately, I don't think it really holds true uh, for real life abuse, right? Um, and 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 people who've gone through something horrific like this, 
they're not really viewed as like rock stars. Um, and they're not, they're not walking into school. Now the confident badass is going to go get the girl and everybody's like, Oh my God, you know, he's amazing. And that's the, that's the vibe of this final scene. And I don't like it because I think, unfortunately, when someone goes through something horrific like this and people know about it, instead it becomes a, a bad, like people are, are, are afraid to talk to you. They, they don't know what to say. They're, they kind of subconsciously view you as damaged in a way. And I think people are, are afraid of that and they don't want to bring back some of that trauma by saying the wrong things. I think people are like afraid to talk to you, but then also like subconsciously, I think people worry that there's like a, that they could get some of that on them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't know right. how to say it in yep. a way. It's like, it's not a, it's not a conscious thing, but I, I don't think that people are, are looking at you because you, you killed somebody like he killed somebody. Okay. I don't think people are looking at him and saying, wow, what a badass. I think people are going to be like, I can't believe this kid went through this shit and he and he killed somebody like, yeah, the guy was a murderer himself. But I don't know. I just don't think his reputation would be that of as a fucking rock star at the end of the, at, when he goes back to school. I mean, yeah, I can see it. I, I again, I, it feels a lot like a lot of horror films for whatever reason felt the need to end like this yeah. to make people feel badass to make people think it's badass um i mean like i maybe it's the true crime in me too a little bit like i've 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 heard enough about victims who escape and shit like that like they they their lives are forever changed by what go what they go through and they often have to have you know therapy for many many years after and whether or not they're able to ever come to grips with what yeah. they suffered i guess my my only two points on it would be one it's like therapeutic again like it's so he's sort of going through the motions and feeling yeah. the everything he went through and this, this is, is almost like a parable in some ways right? or like a you know a wish fulfillment yeah of like what he would have preferred to happen in his life or something like yeah. that based on like things that have happened and then also teenagers love to go see horror films and you know i don't know is this r i don't even I think know it, if it's i think it is inevitably teenagers are going to see it and like maybe that's like for them you know that that like an idea and that empowerment there is there is something to be said for that but okay so the the father i think his apology lands better and is given more importance if it is the end of the movie but it gets it gets overlooked i think because we are given this other scene that's the thing that you're going to leave the theater thinking about and the thing we leave the theater thinking about is this final moment of him returning to school. I I just would have cut. I I would have ended on the father begging forgiveness. I think is a better place to end it. And we don't know. I, I, there is a little bit of like a Bruce Willisy like confidence that he is even walking out of the house with that I thought was a little odd. Like the the police run up to him and he goes basement <laughs> and i thought it was like i was like laughing i was like it's like such a badass as he's walking out of there and he's like yeah go to the basement <laughs> you'll see <laughs> you know like damn right. dude <laughs> um but but so regardless i still think that's a better place to end on um for me than than this very very wish fulfillment -y moment at the end that we get kind of a weird gripe but it, it is the thing that you leave with it's the final thing in the movie so it's got a lot of importance, right? Is that primacy and re recency stuff, right? Like we're going to, we're going to leave remembering the thing we saw last. And that's the thing we see last.
Right. I, I think that leads us into our, our vote here. We have to decide if we preferred the source material from Joe Hill, the black phone, or if we preferred Derrickson's film. So you want to start? Sure. Um, I really enjoyed this uh, movie. Ultimately, as much as I have my quibbles and the things that I, you know, I've, I've, I've sort of harped on. It's, it's funny because like we're we're doing an episode where we're dissecting a thing. Right. So we're going to talk about our criticisms. But like. I talked about how much I loved Ethan Hawke in this movie. Uh, I think it is scary. I think there's some really clever visuals. Um, ultimately, I like this adaptation a lot. Short story uh, was pretty good. Um, nothing about it to me screams this This deserves to be made into a movie, if that even means anything. Um, so solid. Um, I do want to read more Joe Hill because I feel like this is just a barely scratching the surface of what his writing can be like. Um, so I'm interested to do that. I guess ultimately I come down on it. I think I prefer the movie. I'm going to give it to the movie here. I think, I think it takes, it takes a story that has some good bones, has, has some, some good ideas. And uh, there's an evolution. There is an expansion. And I think that worked better for me, even though I don't necessarily agree with everything that was done. Um, I, I'm going to give it to the movie here. Yeah, I uh, really want to read some more Joe Hill as well. I think I've been wanting to read Joe Hill for a long time. We've talked about Lock and Key. We talked about um, Horns. I'd like to. Re- I would like to revisit him for sure. I enjoyed this story. I think it's got good bones, like you said. This idea of true crime mixed with and, and like this this you know child fighting for his life in this way and dealing with the trauma and in some similar ways, you know, in interesting ways to now be able to look at Joe Hill and Stephen King and sort of find his place in horror in the, in this way. And and I think it's clear that he is his own, his own artist. So that that's cool. I think he, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to see what else he has uh, in his repertoire. This film, um, I just like Derrickson a lot as a filmmaker. I like his vision. I like the way that he approaches horror films. I'm, you know, mostly positive on this film. Glad that it exists. Want to see more from Derrickson again. I think, like I said before, my expectations did play with me a little bit because I was I was really looking for Sinister, and it, it's something a little different this time. Um, I'm gonna take the film here. I liked, I liked it enough to where I like I would recommend it to people, which is a big factor for me. So if you like horror films, and it's it's sort of this, in the way that it doesn't want to be nostalgic, it's still sort of an homage in certain ways, and it does have some things that horror fans are definitely going to enjoy. And I think like it's, it's, yeah, we talked about how maybe it's a little right over home plate, but then I think he hits pretty much a home run, you know, like, although it may be easy to like, to uh, criticize some of the things that we've seen before, he did a lot of good with it. And I, I, like I said before, I loved a lot of the visuals and it takes place mostly in a basement and Ethan Hawke's performance is just like next level. Yeah. All right. So it sounds like we're both giving it to the movie here. Um, Stick around for the very end of the episode where we're going to announce our next project, which I'm very excited about. Um, But if you enjoyed this episode, please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on, uh, especially on Apple Podcasts. We are getting so close to 100 reviews. Uh, I'd love to see that. Um, It would just be an exciting sort of, uh, you know, milestone for our podcast.
And make sure to connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. We are also on TikTok now, so check that out. <laughs> That's true. If you would like to support this podcast monetarily, we do have a Patreon, and on there you can get uh, different merch that is exclusive to Patreon. And also, at our $2 tier, you can get our bonus episodes, which are released monthly. We're going to be recording another one of those soon. So I don't even know what it's going to be, um, but it'll be on there soon. Um, definitely check that out. Uh, lots of good content. And thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right. So all that's left to do is to announce our next next project, uh, which definitely excited for. Yeah, it's Sandman, Neil Gaiman, which I've been looking forward yeah. to for literally years at this point since it was announced that it would be adapted. One of our favorites on the pod, um, right? I've always wanted to read this. Yeah. Love Neil Gaiman. Yeah. And this is one of the ones that's like, that's like, I think what is maybe his most well known, at least among Gaiman fans especially if you're someone who knows him from his comic book work, like this is the touchstone. Everybody talks about Sandman. I've never read it. So we're going to cover the comic first before the show comes out. Um, I think the first half of the, of the initial run, which is like, I think the first 10, 10 issues, issues, something like that. Yep. Um, so our plan is to tackle that, talk about the comic. Then we'll dive into the show, um, leaving the second half of it so that we can preserve some of the story. Uh, we'll react to the first half of the Netflix series, which I think is all dropping at once. And then we'll come back and do a third episode. So this is going to be a three-parter uh, where we wrap up the show and comics at the same time and make our a judgment on what is the one we prefer ultimately. So big project coming up. Hopefully you join us again for that in the future. And until next time, keep adapting. Keep adapting.